1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26 read, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hello, and welcome back to Think This Way. This is the Podcast of Faith Bible Church. As always, I am Pastor Elder Overseer Bryce, and I have with me Pastor Elder Overseer Dan. Hi. Dan, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I always pick podcast episodes and who I think should co-host them based on subject, and we are talking about something that is remarkably deep, has a rich historical tradition to it, is full of worship, reverence, and awe. And Dan, I just feel like you're the one to discuss this with. That's not a comment against any of the other elders, but I just feel like this would be a very good one for you and I to talk about, well, Dan. It, it's, it's, it's a joy to discuss this matter, and it's such a blessing to God's people. So I'm so thankful that we're covering this you know, during this series of podcasts. We've been talking about the local church this quarter, and we are now talking about the two ordinances— uh, that have been given by Christ, ordered, ordained by Christ to his church. The first is baptism. Today we're talking about communion. It's sometimes called the Lord's Table. And it is when we gather as a fellowship. We do it here at Faith Bible once a month, although how regularly one does it isn't commanded in Scripture, just regularly. We do it once a month. We distribute bread and drink, and we remember Christ's death together. I wanted to start this podcast by explaining the four views of communion that have been common in the history of the church. And I'm sure there are others, but these are the four common ones. And that will lead us into the questions that I have for Dan on which of these views we take as a body and how we should think about communion. So let me briefly go over the four. The very first one is the position of the Roman Catholic Church. This includes all the way back to medieval the medieval Roman Catholic Church, so this is what the Reformers were dealing with, it's still the position of the church today. It is called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. That is a long word. The idea that the Catholic Church is teaching with communion is that when the priest takes the host, which is the bread, and lifts it up and consecrates it, their teaching is that in that moment, Using Aristotelian terms. Isn't that a nice... I figured since I said transubstantiation, I can say Aristotelian, right? That means from Aristotle, the ancient philosopher, using terms that he developed, the accidents of the bread remain bread. Meaning when you look at the bread, it looks like bread. On a molecular level, it's bread. Tastes like bread. But the substance of the bread really and truly changes into the physical body of Jesus Christ. So that is actually really the body of Christ. It just still looks and tastes like bread. 
And the priest is affecting that change in a sense when he's consecrating the bread. And so what's happening in communion then is a repeated bloodless, but still a sacrifice of Christ in which grace is really conferred. It's, it, in a sense, contributes toward, leads toward, maintains one's salvation. So there's a salvific sense to it. So that's transubstantiation. When Jesus says, this is my body, he means it really. That's actually his body, even though it doesn't look like it. That's the Catholic view. Now, Luther protested as a Protestant. And now Lutherans today have a view, beginning with Luther, and developed by those who followed him, called consubstantiation. And I will be honest with you, I don't really fully understand the Lutheran position. So just being fully honest, I'm trying to, trying to understand it. But basically, Luther wanted to maintain, like the Catholic Church did, that Christ was really present. But he didn't believe in what the Catholic Church said was happening, that the body of Christ, that the bread itself changed in substance to the body of Christ. He didn't believe that, but he he still wanted Christ to really, really be there. And so his view is that Christ is really present. I think, some Lutheran, correct me if I'm wrong, I think even almost in a physical sense, but he's not as the bread. He's in, with, and under the bread. So he's present, but he's not the bread. And that was important to Luther because this is my body. He wanted Christ to be there. There's some theology to discuss there. How is that possible? So there comes in the communication of attributes from Jesus, divine to human nature. He's omnipresent in his divine nature. And Luther, I believe, argued that could be communicated to his human nature. Therefore, he could be omnipresent physically and be there. So that's that view. View number three is called memorialism. It's often associated with the reformer Zwingli, wherein the elements of bread and wine, there's no transubstantiation, there's no consubstantiation. Jesus is not physically in his body present during communion, but instead do this in remembrance of me. We are remembering. So the bread and wine symbolically represent the body and blood of Christ, but they are not his body and blood, and his body and blood are not really truly present, but we're remembering. People have told me that Zwingli's view is more complex than that, so I'm sure it is, but that's usually how we think of Zwingli's view. It's a memorial, we remember. The last common view, especially among those who are Reformed, is the view articulated by John Calvin, and it's often called the spiritual presence view, The idea here is that Calvin also wanted to maintain that we are really experiencing Christ more than just remembering him. So he did not agree with just memorialism, but he also didn't believe that Jesus physically was coming down to us. He's seated at the right hand of the Father physically, and that's where he is. And so what Calvin taught is that during communion, the Holy Spirit he unites he has united us to Christ in such a way that spiritually we are in the presence of the physical Christ in heaven so we are experiencing that and so during communion we are remembering but there's something more there we are really in the presence of Christ he doesn't come down we go up to him and experience him in that way so those are the four common views And they may confuse you. 
But you're in luck because we have Pastor Elder Overseer Dan <laughs> here to disentangle wow. hundreds of years wow. of brilliant men. <laughs> oh my. But really, I Bro- thought, brother. After this, uh, after this podcast, I'm going to rebuke you in the name of the Lord Jesus. He's going to need another trip to just go get away from all this. Uh, well, I thought we'd start with easier questions, Dan, and move to the harder ones. Oh, okay, all right. We'll ease into it now. The first question I have starts like this: We can all agree, no matter what our view, that communion is at the very least an act of memorial that's kind of the base it is an act of memorial we all agree with that so jesus said do this in remembrance of me so there is definitely remembrance that should be taking place so just starting with that before we discuss any other stuff dan maybe guide us how can we make the most of communion when it comes to remembering how do we remember christ's sacrifice well while we're participating in the lord's table well, I, I think I think first by giving the most. We get the most when we give the most. I, I mean by that, first get rid of the distractions. Instruct family members, especially those that are younger children, ahead of time what's going to happen. Help them understand the distinctives. Make certain that you're present you're not only present mentally emotionally but that you're physically present the lord gave these sacraments these remembrances to us and they are rightly called the means part of the means of grace and it is important for us to celebrate the lord's table together Uh, so also prepare ahead of time now you ask how do we remember Christ's sacrifice well? Well, again, I would say prepare ahead of time. Meditate upon our Savior, His great cost, our great sin. And remember that this is part of our worship. It is not simply a ritual. It's not simply something done to have a bit of pageantry in our service. But this is part of how you and I worship the Lord Jesus, who, in obedience to the Father, loved us, became incarnate, lived a perfect life, a sinless life, was crucified, dead, buried, and was raised. All of that worship and thankfulness and reverence would be how we remember Christ's sacrifice well. So that remembering that we do by faith, as you described, that's what we're doing in communion. And that would put us where Zwingli is often accredited with memorialism. So we are memorialists at least. So we come to the Lord's table. So even with all the complicating discussion that we just talked about, the four common views, I hope you don't now partake of communion wondering, what am I supposed to think of this? At the very least, what Dan just said, come remember the sacrifice of Christ by faith. I do want to ask this question, and I'll simplify it because I gave those four views. I'm going to put aside the two that we know we don't agree with, which is transubstantiation, the Catholic Roman Catholic view, consubstantiation, the Lutheran view. 
It leaves us with memorialism, which we do agree with at least. And then Calvin's view, and maybe any other view that would say yes to Zwinglianism or to memorialism, yes, but also there's more. And that's the question I want to ask now. So we all agree we're remembering by faith. But Dan, do you believe anything more than remembering by faith takes place during communion? And what I mean is, should we expect when we are in communion, something more to happen than we expect when we are all by ourselves at home, remembering Christ's sacrifice by faith? Uh, That is such a great question. And there are two quotes I'd like to give. One is by R.C. Sproul, who says that the means of grace, and of course that includes the Lord's table, are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. It is, if you if you look in the scriptures, it is always the word spoken, the word understood, the word received, which precedes belief and adherence to Christ. The other, the other quote is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that quote is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates that's a key word there, communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. And there you see the role of the Holy Spirit in you know, this, this element, this gift that God has given the church. Now, Bryce, you mentioned a couple of verses here. The first one, 1 Corinthians 10.16, and it reads, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The blood that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And as I read that, and I read your notes, I was struck that, notice, Paul, as he writes to the Corinthian believers, he's saying that it's more than simply identification with, meditation upon, appreciation of, or glorification of Christ Jesus the Son and the gracious and merciful plan of the redemption of the Father, not only from the pronouns in our English translation, we, 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 but through the context, we know that it is far beyond a person, singular, autonomous event, but it is with God's people, his called out ones, the ones for whom Jesus shed his blood. That's why it's so important that Paul correct the errors of the church of Corinth who were already divided enough. We are participating in this feast together. It is not just me and Jesus in the garden alone. Nobody else has ever understood this. I'm doing this as part of the body of Christ. It almost reminds me of when we talk about preaching on a Sunday morning. Is there any biblical basis to say that when someone is preaching from the front in the Sunday morning, God is more likely to use his word powerfully in your life than when it's just you by yourself in your room alone doing a quiet time? I don't really have a strong biblical basis to say that. That's why someone would say, well, I'll just, I get, I don't get so much out of the sermons. I just go home and read my Bible for myself. But I will say this, and this is actually what Calvin said, 
when he made his argument um, in the fourth book of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he started his discussion of the sacraments by saying, well, those who use them know that they do something. <laughs> I mean, and I agree with that. Even preaching is that, as a means of grace, preaching is that way too, where you could go read a commentary, you could listen online these days and find fantastic sermons. So why bother to get dressed on a Sunday morning and come and worship together and hear the preaching? But I can say people are transformed, not just my preaching, but I mean preaching in general. People's lives are transformed. They are in quiet times, but there's something unique happening there. The best biblical basis I can give to it is Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there in their midst, which is happening in the context of the church's gathering, church discipline in that case. Of course, Jesus is always in our midst. But when two or three are gathered, to your point with communion, when we're together doing it as a corporate act of worship, Jesus gives a special promise. I am there in a unique way in your midst. You're participating with the saints throughout history in this corporate gathering. You look at the examples of the New Testament, and they were all together of one mind, breaking bread house to house. Now, I believe that there is that Lord's table element present within those passages. Not everybody does, and that's that's fine. I, I understand that. But that communion that we share is not only with the body and the blood, the bread and the fruit of the vine, but it's also with God's people, the body of Christ. Yeah. So I hope that when someone takes communion, and this is something I'm developing in my own thinking on as well, on the one hand, let's guard against the errors of thinking that the bread and the wine are magical, just like with baptism. You can think being baptized cleans your sins away or does something to you spiritually because of the actual water. It doesn't have to do with the water. Same with the bread and the wine. The Roman Catholic position has shown the extreme extreme abuses and errors where you treat the host like it's a magical thing. So let's not do that. Not saying that. But on the other hand, one of the things that strikes me from some of Calvin's arguments is, you know, the ordinance could have been anything, but it is eating and drinking. And I do think there is some intention on God's part to give us an ordinance that's eating and drinking. Just like with baptism, you're going in the water. The water isn't magic. But it represents, what you're doing represents a spiritual fact of cleansing, you know, or of dying with Christ, being buried and raised. And communion, it is eating and drinking. And I do think, without any magical superstition, that we should think of it as nourishing us. It's not nourishing us spiritually, but it's because of our faith in Christ. And like John 6, where Jesus said, you got to eat me. That's faith, you know. That's not communion per se, but that's what we're doing in communion. We're, exor- we're remembering Christ by faith, and I think we should expect something unique to happen when we eat, when we drink, that will be more than usually nourished through faith in Christ. I hope that'd be our expectation. Yes, I agree. And, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned the John 6 passage, because if you look at that passage, there are parallel expressions that talk about the benefit and the grace that God communicates to us so that it is not relegated merely to physical objects, 
but to the work of the Spirit of God in us through his word and through the response of our soul to the end that we are lost in wonder you know, and grand awesome praise uh, to, you know, to, our, to our Savior. Absolutely. One thing we haven't talked about here, and there's so much more we could talk about, but as we have to wrap up, one thing we haven't talked about is the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is a warning about taking the Lord's table in a, quote, unworthy manner and becoming, quote, guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We don't want to do that. So, Dan, maybe help us. How can we be careful not to eat and drink judgment on ourselves, like it says in 1 Corinthians 11? So who should not take communion, and how do we take communion in the right way? Well, the warning is serious. It is dire. If you look at verse 30 of that chapter, Paul says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Now, that ain't snoring on the couch. That's death. It is important we take the table seriously, not as a ritual without significance or value. Again, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. This celebration, this Thanksgiving, the Eucharist, is a gift direct from the hand of God and his appointed apostles. We would be considered rude, entitled, ungrateful, and ignorant if we treated a gift from a close friend or relative with disdain and indifference. So to your question, Bryce, we avoid judgment by being thankful that God has given us this feast. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast and then celebrate it with joy among God's redeemed people. Well, who should not take communion? First, those who have no part yet in our Lord. If they are unbelievers, then that's really more of the accountability they have because they're hearing, they're seeing the representation of Christ's redemption and they're disdaining it. That's that's an awesome thing and that's the responsibility that leaders elders in the church have to guard the table. Instead, they should abstain and think about what the elements mean and how they are at that time excluded from all of the mercies and benefits that the table represents. Second, we need to obey Jesus. Matthew 5.23, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. I do believe very strongly that that is seen when a brother or a sister gets up before the service, in the middle of the service, and they go over to another part of the gathered people and they take someone aside and they confess sin or they address sin and there's peace established. And I think if that's not done, if you're living in rebellion, it is appropriate that you take that time to abstain at that moment. But here's the wonderful thing. The wonderful reality is that the table is for sinners. It's for people who need the sacrifice. And as we mentioned before in an earlier podcast that the eldership, while there is the initial 
requirement that they be above reproach. No elders are perfect. No Christians are perfect. We cannot think that we earn God's favor by our good works, even as his people. We're accepted by grace and grace alone. And we need to remember that as we come to the table, that yes, if we're struggling with sin, yes, if we have some animosity toward a brother or sister, get that resolved. But in the end, we walk by faith. We accept the gift of the Son of God by faith. Not by our works, not because we've cleansed ourselves, not because we're as pure as the driven snow, but because of God's great mercy. Someone listening to this may have thought of communion as simply a ritual you have to do to go to church, and everyone else is doing it, so you do it as well. Maybe you haven't given much thought to it, or maybe it's one of those things you thought you could take it or leave it. You know, the preaching's where it's at, but communion's kind of just a side thing. Whatever your thinking may have been in the past, may God help us all now by His grace to think this way. Thank you.